Welcome to a new episode of the Hockey News Archive Show with me, Matt Lebove, and my friend and fellow rabbi, Adam Proto, <laughs> up in Ontario. Adam, how's it going? Matt, I'm always decent, decent to good. As you should. How about as you? You should. I mean, it's Christmas mm-hmm. time. That's right. It's a nice time. Next year in Jerusalem, as they say. Uh, <laughs> so we have a pretty, uh, pretty lofty show today. We have uh, Anaheim. Ducks pre and post game analyst and former NHL goaltender Guy Ebert coming up with us a little bit later. But before we get to him, we're going to talk about the uh, the mess, uh, the bottom rung of the Atlantic Division. Uh, three teams that went into this season, uh, I think, with I don't want to say lofty expectations, but certainly um, better than they are playing. Those would be Buffalo, Ottawa. And of course, uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Um, so Adam, I remember at the preseason prognostications you had written in the Hawking News, um, you had said Buffalo, Ottawa, those would be the teams that would be rising the most, uh, followed by Detroit. Mm-hmm. It's actually backwards uh, as it's currently playing out. But uh, let's let's just go team by team, mess by mess, uh, and I guess start alphabetically with uh, Buffalo Sabers. Um, where to start? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, they've been awful. And, you know, that loss to Columbus, you know, 9-4 was just abysmal. And you can see why their attendance is lagging. I guess people still haven't really, you know, bought into them in Buffalo yet. They haven't shown them enough, even though they do have some great, you know, individual talent, young players, and, you know, two great young defensemen in in Power and Darlene. Um, They just haven't been able to do the job defensively, and, and their goaltending hasn't come through. You know, they, they, not that they were, you know, depending on their goaltending to be their savior, but they needed at least decent goaltending. And, and uh, Levi and Lukanen uh, have just not got the job done. Eric Comrie as well just hasn't been yeah, the right mix there. So that's kind of how I see it with Buffalo. As of this taping, a uh, little secret to everybody at home, it's Thursday. So, you know, this is airing on Sunday. But right now, the uh, the Sabers are riding a four-game losing streak uh, with two games to go before Christmas break uh, at home against Toronto and uh, on the road against the Rangers. Could very easily be a six-game slide. Um, I know that they've been banged up a little bit. Tage Thompson has has been out hurt. He's finally back. But there's something mentally going on with the team. When last season, they ended so strongly. They were one point out of a playoff spot. But they made that run really after the pressure was off and there were so many expectations of them coming in this season with all these former first round picks. And, you know, they brought in Connor Clifton and Eric Johnson, which were supposed to help on the defensive end. And, and uh, um, Levi was hailed as, uh, you know, the, the next incarnation of George Vesna. Um, but it's, it's just been bad. And so I, I guess my question to you is if you're Kevin Adams, what do you do in the coaching uh, position do you keep Don Granado? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as we know, Matt, the coaching carousel spins faster and faster. You know, every season, guys are, you know, guys like Mike Sullivan or John Cooper are the uh, the outliers. Um, you know, they they lasted for years and years and years, but most teams just pull the plug. Uh, I know we'll talk about Ottawa in a little bit, but they obviously fired DJ Smith uh, this week, and and rightfully so. They just couldn't get the job done. So um, I think you're right with Buffalo. There's going to be a question about Granado. He's not a a guy who has a lot of uh, cachet, I guess, to to you know dig in his heels and and be there for another three or four years. If things go like this, they're going to have to make a move. Kevin Adams is going to have to make some trades. 
I think maybe look at some of their draft picks, their high draft picks. Now that they've got a lot of young players, they don't really need to keep going back to the well. Uh, you know, Dylan Cousins, Alex Tuck, um, you know, they've got components that are going to be there for a long time. So uh, I think the defense, you're right, with, uh, with Clifton and with Eric Johnson, they thought they were going to get more depth, and, and technically I guess they do, but hasn't really made a big difference in their own zone. There's still, you know, there's a lot of turnstile hockey going on in the Sabre zone, and, um, you know, that's not an easy fix. There's lots of teams that are, you know, better than Buffalo that are still looking for defensive help. So, you know, they've got a real hill to climb. And, and again, going back to the goaltending, they need to, you know, look at, you know, maybe a guy like Martin Jones, even if he comes back on waivers, if the Leafs have to run him through waivers again, um, you know, to get any different look that will give them decent enough goaltending so that their offense can then take over. I don't know. I, 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 I not that I disagree. I just think that it all starts with the head of the snake, so to speak. And so if the team is not committed to playing defense, you could have Patrick Waugh circa 1986 playing goal, and it's not really going to matter because the shooters are too good. The players these days are, are as good as they've ever been offensively. They shoot the puck harder. They pass, they skate faster than they ever have. And if a team is not committed to playing defense, regardless if you have the first overall pedigree of an Owen Power and, uh, and a Sundin, um, it's not going to matter. And so I, I mean, Darlene, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I think that to bring in a new coach, uh, you know, the, uh, the other night when they lost to Columbus uh, nine to four, they were calling for Don Garnado's head. And I think at that point, like we just saw it with Ottawa, when the fans turn, which they seem to have turned now on Granado, I think it's tough to come back unless they go on some crazy five, six, seven game uh, winning streak, which they're certainly you know capable of doing. I think uh, Granado's days are numbered in in Buffalo. Um, well, and, and, and even then, just to finish really quickly, we we have to keep bear in mind with all these teams, Matt. They're playing in an Atlantic Division that's still got a lot of good teams, right? I mean, you can be an up and coming team all you want, um, but you, who, who are you going to knock off their perch? Is it going to be Boston? Nope. Is it going to be the Leafs? Nope you know, Tampa Bay, Florida. So all these teams have an uphill battle. And, and, you know, to your point, I, I agree. They probably have to look at coaching sooner or later, but um, you know, I think there's going to be roster moves probably before that happens. Yeah. Heading West, Northwest week, mm -hmm. right? Buffalo, yep. Ottawa. Yep. There we go. Oops, Northeast on the map in my head. Yeah. North. <laughs> Damn sort of. you. Sort of. <laughs> uh, well, heading over to Ottawa, be that as it may, we cross the border and we talk about the, the senators, um, obviously, uh, DJ Smith relieved of his coaching duties earlier this week and, uh, Jacques Martin, uh, brought in 71 year old Jacques Martin. Interesting. I know it's a interim position. Um, but it'd be interesting to see how the young players respond to somebody of that age. Uh, let's be honest. There is ageism and, mm -hmm. uh, as respected and as much cachet as uh, Jacques Martin has, he has not been coaching in a long time and I have to wonder just as, uh, a younger player, how they might respond behind his back and 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 kind of maybe roll their eyes, um, because you know DJ Smith, seemingly the players loved him. He was a player's coach, uh, younger, uh, but it didn't work. And so, mm -hmm. it it's interesting with you know the new regime of uh, of Michael Anlauer and Steve Steos um, bringing in you know an, a quote unquote old hand like Jacques Martin. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, they didn't get off to a good start the other night. They were up uh, two or three nothing against Arizona and blew that lead. And mm -hmm. they are on a five game bender as we speak. 
uh, and again, this airs on Sunday. They will have already played at Colorado and at home against Pittsburgh. So it could very easily be a seven game slide. And at that point, um, not a lot to celebrate for Christmas. That's for sure. For sure. And I think, uh, you know, I saw an interview with DJ Smith post firing and he talked about uh, Derek Broussard and the absence of, of a guy like Derek Broussard, who's, you know, veteran influence. Some of these younger teams kind of need those veterans to almost be, you know, the extension of coaches out on the ice and, you know, Broussard clearly was at the end of his rope with his career, so he's, he didn't return. But um, it's hard to fill those roles sometimes, especially when you've got younger guys coming in. And, you know, Shane Pinto obviously had his own uh, his own issues uh, to deal with. But I think, you know, they should be a better team. I mean, on paper, they should be a much better team. Uh, you know, Tarasenko was a good pickup. He's done, you know, fairly well for him. Uh, Kubalik maybe not as much, but, you know, still a decent player. Uh, so I think, you know, for me, when you look at that franchise, I now, I now look at a guy like Daniel Alfredson, who's the assistant coach, the new assistant coach. And I wonder if he's being groomed, uh, you know, by management to to become the full-time head coach next season. They, the scary thing is, I think, for them and their fans now, they're, they're past the point of no return, right? Even if you do go on a six or seven game win streak like we saw in Edmonton, you know, Edmonton, when they fire their coach and turn things around. Look at Edmonton and the standings now. They're still, you know, at or closer to the bottom of the Pacific Division. And I think, you know, once you dig yourself deep, uh, as deep a hole as the Senators have dug, there's just no coming back from it. The season's basically over. You're going to be playing 50 games that have no real meaning other than internal development and who you want to keep around uh, for the long term. So I think, you know, they it's painful for their fans to hear. But, you know, you spoke about Ann Lauer and Steve Steos. I mean, they've got a bit of landing room now to kind of wait this out and talk about better times to come. And I think, unfortunately for the fans, those times aren't going to come the rest of the season. I think the only saving grace right now with uh, Ottawa is they've played the fewest games. They've only played 27. So if they do go on some kind of run, it's just interesting. It's like uh, Ottawa, I mean, not Ottawa, Columbus has played, I think, 67 games already. It seems, (laughs) I mean, they've played 33 it seems like they play every night or every other night. It's crazy how the, how the schedule mm-hmm. works out. So, um, but yeah, in, in terms of Ottawa, the goaltending has been suspect. Um, they've had a lot of off ice distractions with the Shane Pinto situation, uh, obviously with the GM getting fired, the whole losing the first round pick. Um, you would think that that would not affect the players performance on the ice, something like that. But it, I guess, especially in a hockey mad market like Ottawa, and any Canadian market for that matter, everything is under such a, a, a bigger microscope. And so maybe it is a distraction. I think it's, it could be an excuse, not a good excuse for poor play, but um, it'll be interesting to see um, Jacques Martin, the kind of grip that he gets, if he can really start implementing a, a more defensive style, a more defensive structure, because it's time is running out, even though they have games in hand, time is definitely running out for the, for the senators. Well, and let's and let's not forget. I mean, even though they are a Canadian city, Matt, they're still Ottawa is still a relatively small town uh, in terms of size. So there's really nowhere for them to hide. I mean, they know who Brady Kachuk looks like. They know who Tim Stutzle looks like. I mean, you you can't uh, crawl into a corner and wait for you know all all things must pass or all things will pass. Like they're going to be under that microscope regardless of whether they win or lose. But the heat from losing and continued losing, no matter who's in who's coaching, no matter who the GM is, you know, it speaks to the the pressures that are on that relatively young group of, of core players. And I think, you know, it's, it's tough to, again, tough to say, tough to hear, but 
you know, they're going to have 50 games left to play in. And, you know, wh whether they climb up slightly in the standings or fall to the bottom, they've got to figure out a way to convert some of their assets into, you know, bona fide difference makers and needle movers. And, and, you know, they don't really need another high draft pick, but the way they're going, you know, they, who knows, crazier things have happened. They could wind up with Macklin Celebrini. I mean, they could, you know, they could win that draft lottery if, if they get close enough odds. So it's, it's, it'd be interesting for me to right. see if something like that happens. Well, and uh, the third team that's uh, a varying level of disappointment is uh, the Detroit Red Wings. Um, I, I, I'm, they started off so well, and Debrinket came on, you know, came out of the gate so strongly. Uh, they are now on a four-game losing streak. They will have played at Philadelphia and at New Jersey, so they two winnable games. Uh, mm -hmm. They have no problem scoring, but it seems again, you know, on a defensive level, it's just something is is not quite right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, everything is comes down to goaltending ultimately for me, right? I mean, they they've they've got three goaltenders this year with Reimer, Huso, and uh, Leon, Alex Lyon. I always forget how to pronounce his name, but um, you know, three goalies who've shown in the past that they can play well. That none of them have really played well, uh, and it's hard to have even if you do have a you know an up tempo offense and you've added you know Patrick Kane and Debrinkat. I mean, you can't outscore bad goaltending for the most part. So I think. You know, their defense core, you know, I, we talked about this before, Matt. You know, Justin Hall was a head-scratcher addition for me, you know, paying him $3 million a year, and I think he's on the third defensive pairing now. That's a, a crazy overpay from Eisen. So, you know, his, his stuff has been kind of hit or miss. His roster additions have been hit or miss for me. I do like Gustus Bahir. Uh, you know, I thought he was a nice little addition for them at a, at a not too, too bad price. But um, ultimately, I mean, they need their younger players to come through. They need Sider to play well. They need Raymond to play well and, and Larkin, you know, being out with that horrific injury, um, you know, this probably put the, the fear of God into them or scared them half to death. So um, you're right. I think they, they started off well. People didn't probably didn't think they would start off as well as they did, but, you know, now they've kind of regressed and, you know, it's hard to see again, hard to see any of those three teams that we've mentioned, you know, putting together enough win streaks to really get back near the top and be assured of a playoff spot. They might be, you know, playing meaningful hockey. Detroit, in my mind, will probably be in the mix the rest of the way, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised ultimately to see them miss out either. It's really hard to, to make jumps from that one part of the competitive cycle to, you know, the upper tier where you're expected to be in there year in, year out, and they just haven't figured out a way to do that yet in Detroit. Right, and I think there's, uh, you know, uh, we haven't even talked about the Patrick Kane signing, uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, they were on quite a roll before he uh, signed with them, and ever since they've been in a tailspin, and you have to wonder uh, how much deferential treatment the players are giving him because they, you know, it's Patrick Kane, he's a future Hall of Famer, blah, blah, blah. Um, you want to look good in front of your new teammate. So are they overpassing? Are they overthinking? Are they, you know, on top of the fact that he's recovering from a major, major surgery uh, and coming in mid-season without the benefit of a training camp, um, it seems like just things are off in Detroit. And, and I think, you know, the tough part of, you know, you want to please Patrick Kane who doesn't uh, or who wouldn't. Um, but it's, it just seems like right now, at least maybe the time, maybe this Christmas break will be a good thing. Everybody to kind of get away from the rink for a few days and clear their heads and then come back, uh, you know, with a, with a, you know, a, a clean slate or a fresh start, however you want to term it. Right. Well, and I think I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the injury. Cause I think sometimes we don't really, put into focus just how severe an injury that was and how, you know, the surgery that other guys have gone through uh, uh, 
you know, uh, trying to think off the top of my head, um, Nicholas Backstrom in Washington. Yep. Um, you know, he's basically done. Back, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, when you're going through major surgery to come back from it in the middle of the year, even if you do train, I mean, he was training here in Toronto before he signed was was Patrick Kane. So um, it's not like he didn't have any type of practice, but I think they've intentionally kind of set the bar low for him uh, in terms of leaning on, on him every night or playing him 18 or 20 minutes. He's probably playing, I believe, between 15 or 16 minutes instead. So he's, he's not going to be out in the ice for you all the time. He can't be your savior. Uh, it's got to come from your core of players. And, and again, I just wonder, you know, Dylan Larkin, I, I really like as a player, but is he that kind of generational guy uh, that most teams need, whether it's Nathan McKinnon or Sidney Crosby or Austin Matthews? I mean, the generational talents that I think really aren't there in Detroit for me, maybe Cider, I guess so you could see him as a, def, you know, a cornerstone in that regard. But for the most part, they just don't have that type of, you know, grade A top, top level talent, I think. And that's, that's something that you need and you can only get through the draft. So it's, it's hard again for the Wings fans to hear them because yeah. they they're so used to success, but they're going to have to be patient. I think Dylan Larkin is a great second center, a two, a two C as, as we say in the yeah. hockey yeah. world, you know, I think on, on Colorado, on Dallas, he would be a two C. Um, yeah. And just so, yes, you're right. They are, they've not had that uh, opportunity uh, luck, if you want to call it, because they've been in the in the lottery the last several years to uh, move up. In fact, uh, the, the year that they got cider, they dropped, I think, from second to fourth uh, or even mm-hmm. first. I think they had the worst record in the league. Uh, we'll have to stat check that later. But in any mm-hmm. event. Um, all right. Well, let's switch gears for a second. Mm-hmm. So before we get to our first guest, uh, let's talk about bourbon, your favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And our friends, our friends at Bodega Cat. Mark Norman, Sam Morrill. Let me put up there. Let me put, there we go. Bodega Cat Spirits for last minute Christmas gift to your friends. Bodega Cat Spirits, the one. It's a smooth sipping whiskey. And uh, for these cold nights, whether you're in Canada, Antarctica, (laughs) Sherman Oaks, California, where Mm -hmm. some people might be right now, uh, (laughs) it's a good, it's, it's, it's the perfect uh, aperitif. Um, Yes. So yeah, and they're going, those guys are hilarious comedians in their own right. So, you know, yeah, let's let's, and, let's support. And underrated philanthropists. <laughs> yeah, they don't they do a lot of publicity. So. Good guys. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Enough with them. Uh, we'll be right back with our first guest, our only guest today, Guy Ebert. <laughs> All right. We are joined today by our very first guest. His name is Guy Ebert formerly of the Mighty Ducks, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And, uh, Guy, I have to just jump right in and say, like, I did a deep dive research on the lack of great Francophone names. So, you know, there used to be, like, Serge and Gaston and and Rajon. Guy, the last person named Guy drafted was 1991, Guy Lehe. And it just makes me wonder, like, what – I guess maybe it's generational, but like, where have all the great French Canadian names gone? Uh, it's a great question. And I don't have the answer for you, but uh, my mm-hmm. dad being a huge hockey fan and uh, having a first son, which he named after himself, Paul. And then I was the second son and he was a huge Guy Lafleur, Lafleur fan. And he was just a, you know, a, a college hockey player. And uh, I think that there was, some divine intervention of naming me that and then wanting me to be a hockey player. 
Uh, so I, it fortunately worked out in the end. It's almost like he willed it into existence. It, it kind of, and it, and it started in the basement with my older brother shooting on me at a very young age. So I think there was uh, a method to his madness. What, what's your brother's name? Paul. So he's, uh, my dad's Paul, Paul Jr. and Paul Jr. Yeah. Because over the years, I, you know, and again, in my estimable research, because I was a journalism major, you have played <laughs> with people like Jean-Jacques Daniel, Jean-Claude Bergeron, Jean-Sebastien Jaguer, um, coaches Pierre Paget, Guy Chiron, and of course, the great goaltending coach, uh, Francois Allaire. So you've been in some estimable, co estimable company, uh, but nowadays it just doesn't seem like there's another Guy at least uh, as far as we know. So that's a shame. But in any event, um, want to talk about kind of your journey from where you are now to kind of your early days, starting in Hamilton College, a very small Division III, un certainly untraditional hockey school. Um, when did you realize that you were on the NHL radar when you got drafted? Like how did talk about those early, early times for you? Well, I mean, I think like a lot of kids when you're growing up, I mean, you just every day you're playing in the, the driveway or the street or the, the ponds that, you know, you dream about, you know, becoming an NHL player. Uh, so when people would ask me at an early age what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be an NHL hockey goalie. And they said, <laughs> well, no, but well, what, what do you really want to be? Because obviously that's not achievable. And I said, well, uh, why wouldn't it be? And so just as a kid growing up, that's what my focus was. And um, as you said, I, I did take a very untraditional route to the NHL. Uh, I stayed in my local town, Troy, New York, and stayed and played at a local high school. And then from there, I got recruited by a lot of Division I and Division II schools uh, at that time for college. And uh, RPI, which is a, a, at the time a powerhouse in Division I hockey, they were uh, I was recruited by them as well. And just, you know, it was one of those things. I wanted to go to a good college. I wanted to play hockey for four years. And I wanted to, um, and I wanted to start. Like I didn't want to go to college and, and have to sit behind somebody for a couple of years and then try to earn my spot. So that kind of led me to Hamilton College. And you know, the irony is, is uh, you know, people you meet throughout your course of your life and, and opportunities that happen because of it. And uh, one of my freshman teammates, a guy named Harry McCabe, who grew up on Long Island, New York. You know, we had played against each other growing up. Uh, he used to play for Oyster Bay and uh, we had great rivalries growing up as kids. And so we ended up at the same college. And after my freshman year, uh, Mike Richter had played in the National Sports Festival, which was a big kind of like mini Olympic type of tournament. And, and Mike had gotten hurt. And um, there was a tournament call, uh, called the Chowder Cup coming up late in the summer. And Mike had to pull out of the tournament playing for the New York Junior Rangers. Here comes Harry McCabe. Coaches are asking if anybody knew a, a goalie or a good goalie. And Harry raised his hand and said, hey, uh, my goalie at Hamilton's pretty good. And we've played against each other for years. Why don't you see if he wants to play? So I'll make this a little more brief. But so I got an opportunity to go down there and, and kind of try out for the team and made the team and we went and played this thing called the chowder cup in boston and it was uh you know teams sponsored by the boston bruins and chicago blackhawks new york rangers uh detroit red wings uh kind of so uh, uh wow. probably like six teams the original six teams kind of all had a team there and uh ended up having a great tournament and got mvp of the tournament and all of a sudden had scouts going who is this guy and so it was interesting. So, you know, my uh, my teammate at Hamilton really opened up the door for an opportunity for me to go play in this tournament where 
you know, fortunately, you know, you never know how many opportunities you're going to get. So you have to really kind of seize those. And I, I played really well, got noticed by some of the scouts that were in the stands. And, you know, the highlight for me was that I was playing against some drafted kids. And, uh, you know, like the the kid that was like the biggest name or one of the biggest names was Jeremy Roenick. And he was like a 16 year old kid playing on the, the Boston Junior Bruins. So for me, it was just exciting to get to play against some guys who were already drafted or were going to be drafted and uh, were, were already big names uh, around town. But that really opened up the door for me to get scouted by NHL teams and eventually selected by the St. Louis Blues. So we had Brian Engblom on last week and we were talking to him about his draft day experiences. And he was saying that um, he worked in for the city of Winnipeg mowing lawns. And this is certainly pre-internet kind of, you know, around, you know, 10 years before you were drafted, but um, his dad came to him as he was working and he thought, Oh God, why is my dad here at work? There's something wrong. And he said that he realized it was uh, the draft that day. And he said, his dad said to him, bonjour, you're going to Montreal. How did you hear uh, that you got drafted by St. Louis? Certainly uh, pre-internet and there's no, you know, the draft wasn't on TSN back then, that's for sure. Yeah, I, you know, these stories are so great on how guys found out back in the day. Uh, so in my sophomore year at, at Hamilton College, I came down with mono and I missed a significant time uh, in my second semester was able to kind of get back at the end of the school year, but I needed uh, to take some exams uh, in the summertime. So I can remember taking uh, microeconomic theory and uh, we were on an honor code system with the school. And so I was FedExed the final exam and it happened to come and I had to take it within 24 hours and put it back in a FedEx and send it back to the professor. Just so happened it showed up on draft day. So I was grinding away at a micro theory exam and the phone rang and I can remember my mom picking up the phone and she yells down to me and says, uh, hey, the St. Louis Blues are on the phone. And I was like, are you kidding me? And so literally I picked up the phone and it was uh, the St. Louis Blues, uh, Mr. Karan. And uh, it was great, great opportunity to talk to him and then uh, the whole coaching staff. But just an odd way to realize your childhood dream as you're, you know, taking a micro theory exam and then being able to say, um, how am I going back to this test after getting this kind of news? <laughs> life-changing, yeah, definitely yeah. life-changing call. Well, uh, also did, just so you know, I, I, I did wait the next day to FedEx out the exam and I put <laughs> the, the hometown clippings of the newspaper about getting drafted <laughs> in with that exam and set it back and said, uh, you know, I, I fulfilled a, a lifelong dream with this. Uh, please excuse uh, whatever this exam might tell you. So I believe I got like a D in that course, but we <laughs> the, the credits. Well, it all worked out. Yeah, I promised to drop economics as my major, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, Guy, you started your pro career in Peoria, uh, the old International League, and, and you won a Turner Cup in your second season. Um, give us, give us an example or, or your, your experience, you know, as a pro for the first time, was it what you expected? Was it, you know, beyond your belief, were there little strange things that happened when you, when you decided to turn pro, how, how did you adjust? Oh yeah. I mean, coming from a, at the time it was division two hockey. And, you know, I always said like the first line at all the division two schools could have played division one. It was just a lot of, uh, you know, uh, opportunities that you didn't get to go to division one or, or opted like myself to choose a division two school to be able to play right away. Uh, you know, I can remember showing up at training camp and, uh, I, you know, Adam Oates, 
uh, went to college down the street for me at RPI. So I got to know Adam prior to that. And so at least I kind of had somebody I knew going into training camp. Uh, but being on the ice with guys like Brett Hall, you know, uh, and the way he sh shot the puck and the way the, all the pros shot the puck was certainly kind of a wake up call. And, you know, I went to camp without a contract. I mean, I showed up as a, as a draft choice and then just wanted to try to make some kind of mark to have them keep me around. So, uh, you know, that initial pro experience, uh, I won't say it was overwhelming, but it was certainly eye opening that, you know, everybody was good. I was looking at like the other seven goaltenders in camp and had Greg Millen and uh, Vincent Riando and uh, Pat Jablonski. And, oh, the Blues just happened to have signed Curtis Joseph as a free agent out of Wisconsin. <laughs> so with the, the locker room was just packed with young goaltenders and, and veteran guys that, you know, already had a stranglehold on, hold on the starting position. So, uh, I mean, I was hoping for a chance to go to Peoria. Uh, they sent me there and allowed me to play under, you know, sometimes it was a 25 game contract. I started with that, eventually earned a, a real contract for a three year deal. Uh, but it was really just one of those things where, you know, just kind of learning the game that was much quicker. It was much more physical. I mean, in my college experience, there wasn't really any fighting. And so to have uh, Tony Twist and Kelly Chase, uh, those guys, you know, in the lineup um, and, and the fighting and stuff like that, that happened early in my career. It was it was certainly I mean, it was thrilling and exciting in one part, but certainly it was it was way different than I was accustomed to. Well, and I guess, you know, you you start to become known as a workhorse, right? You slowly kind of build your cred. You had 24 games with the Blues in 1992-93. Uh, and then the expansion draft comes calling and you're the first pick of, of the Ducks, um, brand new organization. And in, in your first year, you play 52 games, which, you know, seems like a huge mountain for today's goalies. But you you adapted pretty quickly. But what happens when you go from a team like St. Louis that has a history, that has a, a culture to a place that really doesn't? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of the guys who hope to get that opportunity of going to an expansion team to try to prove that, in my case, try to be a number one goalie and prove that to uh, the new team. And, you know, we always thought that, like, you know, hey, some guys are rolling into an expansion team, you know, trying to save their career. Some guys are in the middle of their career and some guys are just starting their career. So uh, when I came to Anaheim for the Mighty Ducks, I mean, it was certainly a great opportunity. Uh, you know, it wasn't easy. I had Ron Tugnett as my goalie partner and we knew that we were going to battle it out. And historically goaltenders were just eaten up during expansion era. You know, you talk about, you know, the sharks or the Ottawa senators, you, you just knew that it was difficult to survive, uh, let alone try to thrive and, and make a, you know, a real career out of being a selection there. But uh, you know, I think goaltenders of, of my era, I mean, we, we thrived on the fact that like we wanted to play every single night. And if you got the opportunity to be the starting goalie, uh, really, I mean, unless you had some debilitating injury that would keep you out, uh, you never wanted to give that net up. I mean, one, because you just wanted to play. You felt like you kind of owed it to your teammates. And also, you didn't want to give that net up because if your backup came in and stood on his head, you know, then all of a sudden you felt like you were in a, a fight to kind of regain control of that net. So uh, there was a lot of motivation to stay in there. Uh, and, and compete every night. And if you played well, the coach was more likely to keep you in there. Um, but I mean, I, I still love the fact that we played back-to-back -back games. You usually played as well or better the second night. All you did was just kind of wake up and go to the rink and start all over again. 
So uh, I, I think today's day, I understand how they're, you know, kind of monitoring the workload of goaltenders. Uh, they never seemingly play back-to-back games, but, you know, that's just kind of the new era. But um, I often say and, and talk with Brian Hayward out here in Anaheim that, you know, I wonder if the goalies would go back to embracing, you know, playing more games, less practice, and, and certainly those back-to-back games. Well, I, I, I'm sure there's one thing goalies wouldn't want to go back to was the size of the equipment you guys used to wear in comparison to now. I mean, now they look like Iron Man out there. And it's just, I see pictures like of Mike Vernon and some of the goalies back from the 80s and 90s. And they're, the, 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 you know, the, the pads are like this and the shoulders. It's like, I don't know. Nowadays, with the, with the stick technology being the way it is, I can only imagine Al McInnes taking a slap shot with a composite stick. I mean, the guy was firing oh, yeah. over 100 miles an hour with a wooden Sherwood 30 years ago. I can't even imagine. I mean, it would be lethal. So, um, so, so staying on the Ducks, um, season four is when the Ducks, I believe, made the playoffs for the first time. Talk about Korea, uh, Timo Solani, kind of the the impact, the effect that they had when they kind of really coalesced the, you know, and brought the team to, you know, to a whole new level. Yeah. Well, you know, when we drafted Paul, uh, you know, we knew that we were getting a kid who just won the Hobie Baker as a freshman and his skill set was, you know, was off the charts. Uh, so we always knew that, I mean, he was going to come in and try to help our scoring. I mean, that first year, you know, we were successful only, you know, we used to joke about like, Hey, gee, shut him out and we'll try to get you one. So we tried to win every game, one nothing or two to one. If it got to be, you know, three goals against, we kind of figured that, you know, our chances of winning were starting to dwindle, but we knew Paul was on the horizon and, you know, how, how could he impact the team by himself? Uh, which was incredible because when he came in we couldn't believe the speed of Paul, uh, his playmaking ability, and of course, his focus. I mean, everybody talks about how focused Paul was uh, as an athlete and, you know, but he couldn't do it on his own. And so after, you know, obviously a short amount of time, uh, I think the organization, uh, Jack Ferreira in particular, as our general manager, was was trying to figure out, you know, who was out there that, you know, could be a running mate with Paul. And, um, you know, I mean, I always go back to the story of, uh, you know, uh, Tamu Solani was apparently on the trade block, but was he really... And then apparently Jack Ferreira, who's told me the story, said that, you know, hey, I just called. I just called to inquire if he was really tradable. And he said, well, you know, well, you know, I think it was John Paddock, maybe. I can't remember who the GM of uh, Winnipeg was at the time and just said something like, well, what would you be willing to offer? And I think Jack came right out and said uh, Chad Kilger and Oleg Tavardoski. And so however they managed to work things out. I remember after practice, sitting in the training room, the coaches called in Oleg and Chad Kilger and, and they went in for a few minutes and came out and, you know, wow. uh, Oleg was uh, really kind of, uh, he was really mad. I'll use general language <laughs> for that. And then Chad Kilger, who was 18 at the time, you know, came out and uh, was just like unconsolably upset. And I said, well, what's going on? He says, we just got traded for Tame Solani. And I was trying to be a good guy and a good teammate and expressing <laughs> my excitement, uh, you know, about that and, and console him. But, you know, that was a deal that will forever live in Anaheim's uh, lore. I mean, it was. Uh, you were probably going to offer them a ride to the to the uh, airport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as, as the news spread, it was pretty amazing, uh, you know, that we were going to get 
uh, you know, I mean, not just a quality player. I mean, we were going to yeah. get one of the best goal scorers in the league who we knew instantly was going to be paired with Paul. And, you know, obviously putting those two guys together, I, I mean, it was magic from the moment that they met, you know, I mean, they were, uh, you know, kind of like the odd couple, because if you know Tamu, I mean, he's a lover of life and, and loves fans and he loves, uh, he loves everything. Right. And yeah. he talks to anybody and does, uh, you know, uh, great things, but, you know, and Paul was so focused. So I really think that, you know, over time they, they blended so well, you know, Paul made Tamu more focused and serious about the game a little bit and then vice versa. Tamu was able to kind of soften Paul up and, and have him try to enjoy the game a little bit more. So the combination between the two of them off the ice was great, but, you know, certainly what you saw on the ice was, uh, you know, just pure chemistry. And I'd have to think that, that playing against these guys in practice only makes you better. I mean, if it was me and Adam, you know, on a morning skate firing pucks at you, not as probably not as hard as, you know, Paul Korea and Timo Solani, you know, taking shots on you, you know, every day during practice, that must've really helped your game as well. It elevated everybody's game. I mean, it really did. I mean, uh, the other guys on the ice tried to emulate some of the things that they, they did. And of course, our defense had to face them every day in practice. So it made them better, you know, made them more aware of the skill. And then when we played teams that had great skill, they were a little bit more prepared for that. And especially, you know, the goaltenders, you know, having to face those guys, working with them after practice. You know, Paul was a, a tireless worker, always was working on something, always working on his shot, his release. And so, you know, we always got extra time, you know, with with both of them after practice to, to work on those breakaways. You know, you, you kind of name it. I mean, Paul was a big lacrosse player. And so they always talk about his shot kind of emulating how you would throw a lac lacrosse ball. And so it's interesting that if you watch Paul shoot the puck in highlights, even today, you know, the way he collects the puck and then releases it, it is so similar to that of a lacrosse shot. Uh, probably nothing better than the goal he scored in game six and overtime against the Phoenix Coyotes to, to let us go and play in a game seven. I mean, that uh, flip pass from Tamu from our zone out yeah. to Paul streaking down to the blue line. And, you know, I know uh, Nikki Happy Bulin, uh, you know, great goaltender, probably still to this day cannot believe that Paul came down and just blew it over his shoulder. But I mean, <laughs> those were cool, kind of the cool things that I got to experience. Uh, every day in practice. And I, I actually just told this other story the other day at our 30th uh, kind of anniversary first decade reunion about Paul being a rookie coming down in practice. And I'm looking at him shooting and I'm like, what is he doing? He's actually got his stick flipped over shooting the wrong way on me. <laughs> and I kind of look at him and I chirp him a little bit. He comes down, he does it again. I chirp him some more and I finally go over to him. I'm like, I'm like, hey, you know, hey, kid. Like, what are you, you're trying to show me up in practice? What, what's going on? And he's like, oh, no, I'm not. He goes, what I'm trying to do, God, like, you never know when something's going to happen and I'm going to have to have my stick and I'm going to have to flip it over and I'm going to have to try to shoot the wrong handed. And I kind of thought about it and I'm like, who thinks like this? And then I thought about it a little bit more and I'm like, you know what? The best players and the most gifted players think like that. And so I stopped chirping him right then and there. Right. <laughs> It's like Gretzky well, putting baby powder on the on the tape. It's like who yeah, would have thought exactly, of putting baby yeah. powder on the tape? Yeah, Adam. Well, yeah. Um, so, uh, Guy, I guess you know, in a couple of your last years with Anaheim, you you know, really turned up the heat. Sixty nine games in nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, and then sixty eight games. So, one hundred and thirty seven games in two years. That might be four or five years for for a goalie in this day and age. But your numbers got better as as you played more, right? You 
you must have loved it. I, I guess I'm just wondering, is it really all about the mental element of, of your game at that point to stay uh, that focused all year long? Yeah, I mean, I kind of alluded to it that I think most goalies just like to keep playing. And if you're in a good rhythm, you want to continue to play. And there's no, you know, in my mind, there's no, I mean, why would you take a goalie out who's playing so well? And, you know, if you just kind of keep building on that performance game after game, uh, I mean, I, I think there's no reason to come out of a game. I mean, I think I thrived on, you know, the better workload, the more shots in the game. I mean, it really helps you kind of get into the flow game in, uh, in, in early games. You know, when you're sitting there facing five shots in a period, you know, and there's one good scoring opportunity, I mean, you have to, that's a real mental challenge of staying sharp. I mean, but if you're getting 15 shots in a period, you know, you certainly are engaged in the game more quickly. I, I mean, I think fortunately in one sense that, you know, playing on an expansion team, uh, I faced a lot of shots, you know, every season. So I think that, that was kind of, uh, you know, I mean, a blessing in disguise, if you want to say that. Uh, but I did. I, I mean, I enjoyed playing every night. I mean, there are some nights that, you know, you played in Calgary and then you flew to Edmonton and you woke up in the morning and you actually didn't know where you were. And, <laughs> you know, you had to be reminded of like, you know, where was the door out of the room and which one was the bathroom door because you were in yet another different hotel. And, you know, you're waking up trying to figure out what, what where you are, who you're playing and what you're doing. But um I, I did. I mean, I guess the, the simple answer is, is that, you know, for me, you know, being confident and riding those waves of confidence, you know, feeling like you see the puck really well uh, just led to, you know, fortunately, coaches believing in me that like, hey, he's not too tired because he's still playing well. We'll keep riding him until he re really needs a day off. Well, we we at the Hockey News uh, did a ranking of the best goalies uh, in the world. I think 2018 was when we did them. You came in at number 94 out of a hundred, which, you know, you made the cut. <laughs> Not too shabby. Uh, when you, when you look at, at your legacy, what's, what is it all about for you? Was it that staying power of, 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 you know, being able to be relied on a, on a team that might not have been the very best, what you gave them chances to win? Yeah. I mean, I, I've started my whole career just hoping to be able to get one game, you know, and I remember having a quote, after that first game and, and someone said, well, you know, well, what do you think? And what do you think for your future? And, you know, do you think you'll stay in St. Louis? You know, whatever, all, all those questions. And I said, listen, you know, getting to play the one game is all I ever hoped for. I said, everything after this is going to be gravy. And then I later in life had the same kind of question posed to me. And I said, you know, fortunately I had a lot of gravy in my career. So, I mean, I was very fortunate with the opportunities that I got. You know, I'm always forever thankful to the St. Louis Blues for that opportunity of being drafted and getting a chance to come to training camp and, and show them that, uh, you know, maybe there was something there out of a eighth round draft pick out of a small school. And then, you know, forever thankful for the Mighty Ducks for them and Jack Ferreira, you know, selecting me with their first pick to give me an opportunity to show them that, you know, hey, uh, not only am I maybe a backup to Curtis Joseph, but maybe I'm a number one guy that you could rely on for a number of years. So really being able to spend eight years on an expansion team as we grew and evolved and added, you know, obviously great players, getting a taste of being in the playoffs uh, was was great to have that first playoff opportunity. So I guess, you know, my, my time in Anaheim was filled with a lot of firsts, which uh, I look back fondly on, and as we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Ducks franchise, uh, we've had a lot of time this year to kind of reflect on, on a lot of things and a lot of the players. So, uh, you know, I guess gratitude, 
uh, appreciation or, or two big words for my career. Um, towards the tail, towards the tail end, uh, the last team that you were on with was the New York Rangers. Um, talk about just the brief experiences of you know Mark Messier, Brian Leach, Mike Richter, um, kind of just that that experience in in the, that portion of your career. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, hockey's a business and things happen. And, you know, irony is, is that um, I had had a no trade clause for a number of years in my contract. And so I couldn't be traded. So I knew that, you know, I just wasn't going to wake up one day and get the phone call that I was traded to the New York Rangers. So uh, as as it happens, I was put through waivers and Mike, again, had kind of injured his knee. So they were looking for a goalie. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of, uh, I don't even write, write where it is, but, you know, I kind of started my NHL professional career by playing with the New York Junior Rangers. And that's where I first got really scouted to finishing my career with the real New York Rangers. So maybe it was a little apropos, I guess, to, to kind of start and finish with the same kind of jersey, with the same New York Rangers jersey on. Uh, but it was an incredible experience. I mean, to be able to go and play in Madison Square Garden as a New York Ranger and have that experience. Uh, playing for the blue shirts. I mean, I grew up in Troy, New York, a couple hours north of New York City. And it was pretty cool as I was a kid with a New York Ranger jersey on, you know, watching, uh, you know, Eddie Jockman and Jules Villemure and John Davidson and, you know, the whole host of guys that had played uh, for that franchise. So it was really kind of cool to be able to play. Um, you know, I played with, uh, you know, Leach and Richter on, you know, World Cup teams and Olympic teams. Uh, so I was familiar with a lot of the guys and had played against, you know, the other guys for a number of years. And really wasn't Wayne cool. Thomas, Wayne Thomas was with the Rangers and he was the head coach of Peoria at one point, right? So. Yeah. Am I? Yeah. So Wayne, have been kind of uh, neat. Yeah, Wayne was with the blues uh, my, when I first started with the blues, but he was on my first uh, professional coach in Peoria and he had a big, uh, a big hand on my development. I mean, he didn't have a ton of time. We didn't have a goalie coach. Right. But Wayne was there to be able to answer questions or point out things to me and the other goalies, uh, just because obviously his uh, NHL experience and then uh, spending time in St. Louis with Wayne when he was an assistant coach. So, uh, yeah, Wayne Thomas certainly um, yeah, had a huge, huge impact in my career as well. That's great. Um, let's so, want to talk about oh, your, ahead, your sorry. Oh, just uh, talk about your international experience. Uh, 1990 Goodwill Games, 98. Um, Nagano Olympics, 1996, uh, gold medal winning U.S. Uh, the World Hockey Championships. I, 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 tough questions, but I mean, like, how do you rank the, those experiences in your career? Uh, I had a sticker on my door as a kid, and it was Snoopy uh, with a hockey stick over his shoulder, and it said, "I play for Team Team USA." Do you? <laughs> and it was just always uh, a dream of mine to be able to play in the Olympics. And when I was young, I'll date myself, but the, obviously the 1980 Olympics were, were huge uh, for American hockey. Yeah. Being in Troy, New York, and the games being up in Lake Placid, uh, not that far away, really, um, was amazing to feel like I was that close to it. Now, no one could seemingly ever get to those games because there were a whole bunch of issues trying to get into the little village of Lake Placid. So like everybody else, I just sat and watched at home. Um, but that was, uh, you know, a huge impact on me as a kid wanting to play, you know, uh, internationally, the Olympics, you know, certainly to the NHL. 
but I remember just having that sticker on my door and thought it was, uh, you know, an incredible thing that if someday I could play in the Olympics, would it be amazing? Now, the irony is, is I remember playing in the 90, 1990 Goodwill Games and, you know, playing against some incredible talent. I remember, you know, the Russian team had, I mean, literally you could go down their roster and they all played in the NHL. Um, so playing against those guys, I remember doing an interview after a game and I said, well, this is probably as close as I'll ever get to playing in the Olympics because you can't play as a professional. So uh, that was an interesting thing, thinking that it would never happen. Uh, but, you know, getting the chance to represent your country is always just an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I did it in 90. You know, we won. We lost in a shootout um, to the Russians for the, the gold medal there. And then in 94, I played in uh, I would think it was over in uh, Italy uh, in the World Championships. And I think we finished maybe four and played well enough and, and actually received the uh, Bob Johnson uh, award by USA hockey, which is still one of my greatest memories. And then, you know, I think uh, the world, the world cup was uh, certainly a special moment. Now I remember being the backup goalie and I remember watching Mike Richter play to maybe the best level I've ever seen a goalie play in my entire life. I mean, if not for Mike, we'd certainly never win uh, the World Cup. Uh, I did get a chance to play in a game and then I think part of another one. So I got that experience. But just being on that team, which then was mostly the same team for the uh, 98 Olympics, uh, was pretty amazing. I mean, just, you know, you just think about the, the the Hall of Famers that were on our team and to be able to play and practice with them every day was really, really special. Uh, you know, the Olympics was a great opportunity to go and, and be there. And, you know, unfortunately, on a personal level, I didn't get the play, uh, but still being a part of the team and Team USA and everything that goes on with the Olympics uh, was certainly a very special moment for me. You've so, quite a charmed life. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate. You know, the good things have to happen along the way. Opportunities have to present themselves. And, you know, people ask me all the time, is you know, especially young, young kids with parents who are hoping that, you know, maybe their kids can get, an opportunity to play anywhere, uh, you know, junior college or, or beyond. And I always say, you never know how many chances you're going to get. So when you do get an opportunity that presents itself, I'm like, not to put, you know, all the world pressure on you, but you may never get another opportunity if you don't play well. And that's just the reality. So you have to take advantage of those situations, play as well as you can. And then if you do, it probably will open up another door for you. Well, we want to thank you for your time, Guy. We know your your time is is busy, but uh, before we let you go, we want to talk about that that little surprise that we kind of hinted at at the start, where uh, we talk about you as a cartoon character, an animated character in uh, the Mighty Ducks the animated series, uh, nineteen ninety six. You got a, a a literal role. Everybody else was kind of like in cartoon character mode, but you had your name there right away. You were the the goalie in the episode. Um, Tell, tell us how much fun that must have been to see that kind of come uh, come to pass. Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was incredible. And listen, you know, when we started with you know the Disney company and being the Mighty Ducks, I mean, obviously we took some ribbing and took some heat, and you know, I think some of our uh, toughness on the ice uh, gave us some real credibility. You know, uh, Stu Grimson, Todd Ewan, Jimmy Thompson. You can kind of go down the list of the guys that gave us some credibility on the ice. Yeah. Uh, the really great thing about being with the Disney company is all the stuff we got to do. I mean, we were able to go to Disneyland and uh, go down Main Street parades and be part of all that. 
that other teams certainly never had the opportunity to do. Uh, so when the I was called about you know the Mighty Ducks cartoon and would I be interested in being in an episode, uh, I was an art major in college, and so I said absolutely, I'd love to do it. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that Jim Belushi was playing the role of the general manager, and so went up to LA, went to a sound studio and got to meet Jim Belushi. And that's, we did our whole, whole stuff in the sound studio and got a chance to meet him and interact with him. And, you know, there's a couple of clips that they had uh, out there for the NHL and uh, just an incredible time. I mean, it, you know, who gets to go hang out with Jim Belushi and uh, <laughs> you know, talk about, you know, a, a mighty ducks cartoon and, and actually get to play yourself. So uh, yeah, I just, you know, we call it Disney magic and we still call that, you know, around Anaheim here. That's awesome. Well, we can't thank you enough, Guy uh, Bear, for joining us on this show. Uh, you can catch Guy if you have an NHL center ice package on Bally Sports. He is the uh, hockey analyst for the team. And the team, by the way, off to a very good start. Young, scrappy. All these first-round picks are starting to pay off. They're looking really good. Yeah, they are. You know, they... As we just said, stay tuned. Over the next decade, this team is going to be a real contender. Uh, the, the, the young kids, incredible talent level. Uh, the new coach, Greg Cronin, has instilled this work ethic and accountability that's really rubbing off. Uh, the veterans have all ju jumped on and uh, are, are leading the young kids. So uh, they might not win every night, but they are in that game fighting tooth and nail to uh, you know the last minute. So they are definitely a fun team to watch and, and somebody to watch in the next few seasons. Awesome. Well, we thank you for joining us and uh, we'll see you again soon for sure. Yep. Thanks for having me. Appreciate All it. Right. You got thank it. You. Okay. Thanks you guys. All right. We are back. Well, thank you. Gee bear again for joining us. Uh, let's talk a little bit Anaheim ducks hockey right now. Mm -hmm. um, heading into the weekend, they are on a two game winning streak with games at home against Calgary and Seattle, uh, which will have already been played by the time this thing airs. But um, what are your, what are your overall thoughts on the ducks this season? Have you had a chance to check them out? I have. And, you know, I, I thought they'd be better than, than they are, to be honest. I mean, they've been dismal really before this leading into this, you know, modest two game win streak. But, um, you know, you look at their team, Matt, and I think, you know, they're getting okay production, I guess, from some of their players. But like, if you look, Alex Kaloran, big signing, he's got four goals and 12 points in 21 games, not really good enough. Uh, Troy Terry's somebody they leaned on. You know, he was he was really good last year. He's only got eight goals and 20 points. 20 points isn't all that bad, but eight goals, he can do better than that. And then, you know, Frank Petrano, Adam Henrique, uh, Brett Leeson on the second line. I mean, that's that's not going to really intimidate uh, the other side. And, and again, young players is probably, you know, uh, one of the bright lights for them. But 10 goals, 21 points, 24 games, that's – about as good as you can probably hope for a guy that's, you know, still just 20 years old. Uh, and then their, you know, their bottom, uh, bottom line of fours just doesn't really do much for me. They're, they're worker bees, but you know, you got a guy like Jacob Silverberg, uh, 5.25 million and he's got one goal or sorry. Yeah. One goal and seven points in 30 games. I mean, that's just not going to cut it. So uh, no, I think Pat Verbeek, no. you know, Pat Verbeek is going to have to make some trades. You can probably get something good for Henrique. I think, you know, he's, he makes a little bit more than Silverberg at 5.825, um, but 10 goals, 18 points in 30 games. He can help a contender. Like, he'd be somebody I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, Lou Lamorello on Long Island go out and make a trade for because, you know, that type of veteran experience is what they – And he had, he had him in New Jersey. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that often happens as we know when trades guys go back to the well um, and their defense, you know, they add Radko Gudis, they add Ilya Bushkin um, doesn't really make a lot of difference. They're still not a good, a good defensive team and their goaltending, you know, frankly has been, you know, uh, mediocre at best. I think with John Gibson, I think he's got a safe percentage of slightly above 900, 9.905 maybe. So, you know, not absolutely horrendous, but Lucas Doskal has played 30, 13 games and he's at 888, uh, 888 uh, save percentage. So that's, that again, is just not going to be enough when you're asking your team to score four goals per game to, to, to win your games. They can't do it. And, and I think, uh, you know, people were expecting the Ducks that I was at least expecting them to take a step forward. But, um, you know, that Pacific division, it still seems relatively weak, except for the, the three teams at the top. Um, and after that, I think it's just, it's a crapshoot. You, you don't know what you're going to get from any team uh, at the bottom of the Pacific game in and game out. And that's certainly true. I think of the duck so far. I still think overall that it's, it's there. They are inching up. Whereas you look at a team mm -hmm. like Buffalo, it seems like the wheels are falling off, but the expectations I think were certainly were lower for Anaheim than they were for Buffalo and for Ottawa. Right. But I think overall, they are where they probably should be in a sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, they brought in Kalorn for a lot of money and Gudis. You have to overpay, but I did, I did like the fact that they, that Pat Verbeek did bring in these established veteran veterans, these winners to try and change the culture for, of losing because it's been so bad in Anaheim for years now um, where you can look and say, well, Buffalo brought in Eric Johnson and Connor Clifton, nothing against those guys, but um, it's not quite the same. You know, and, and right. I think, I don't know. I, I still like where Anaheim is going. I think, you know, they are still trending up. And, you know, they have, in terms of prospects, they are loaded for bear in terms of uh, well, let's, uh, young young let's defensemen. Not, and just going to say, let's not forget about Leo. Yeah. Uh, Leo yeah. Carlson. I mean, let's not, we haven't mentioned his name yet. Leo Carlson, you know, he's been on, on kind of monitored uh, play and, and yet 22 games, eight goals and 15 points. It's pretty good for a guy that's 18 years old and, you know, 193 pounds. You're going to get uh, an acclimation to the NHL that's going to be painful, at, you know, as a young player, but he seems to be handling it well. So you're right. I think they've they've definitely got better days ahead. But it's just, again, like the other teams we talked about in this episode, Matt, it's very, very difficult to make that jump from, you know, a perennial loser to being a contender again. Some teams don't figure out some teams don't get lucky with the draft and you know it feels to me at least with Anaheim that um you know the Verbeek's plans I mean he had to spend money to a certain degree anyway right just to get to the salary cap yeah. floor um so he had to throw some money at some people out there and you know Ryan Strom I mean five million dollars a year 30 games three goals and 18 points and not really that good for that type of money that's not what you expect for that type of money no. so um yeah. it's it's not It'd be easy for them, and, and I, I, I don't know that I expect them at this point to even make a, a run for a playoff spot, If even if they don't get there. I, I don't even think they're going to get close to it, to be honest. I'm going to make a prediction. Three years, oh. they will be challenging for the Pacific Division <laughs> crown. I can see it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Stranger I'm, I'm saying, if, sure. yeah, and if, you know, uh, uh, Burbeek does have some assets to, to dangle at the trade deadline, Vetrano, uh, maybe a couple of the other guys. Um, I think that they are still stockpiling, and I, I actually like what they're doing in Anaheim. So I, I'm I'm going to say, three years from now, they are going to be right in the thick of it. Um, but again, gonna, that's become such that. a tough division. 
And who knows, mm-hmm. you know, Vancouver, the way that they're playing this season has defied expectations. All the uh, experts like us thinking that they were going to be languishing and look what's happening up yeah. in the Couve. That's right. Top one again, the top three yeah. I have. Yep. Gorgeous city. Very, very beautiful. And unfortunately they haven't had the best hockey luck over the years, but you know, some people, and I, I didn't think they'd be as good as, as they are so far. So I have to give them credit. Um, but still, I wonder, you know, if Thatcher Demko doesn't play well for them or if, if he gets injured, I mean, I, I think the difference between him and Casey DeSmith uh, in Vancouver is, is probably stark. So um, like a lot of teams, they need good luck. They need all the stars to line up uh, properly. And, and that's what you're seeing, I think, with Vancouver so far. Everything's kind of gone almost perfectly, you know, with maybe a couple exceptions of their roster. But um, yeah, the Pacific Division to me is probably still the weakest division of any of the four, um, just because of the of the you know the, the teams at the bottom. I think are are far off. But to your point, I mean things can change, right? It's it's about patience. It's about you know Verbeek finding you know that right mix of of young and old, and and yep. and again John Gibson. I mean they got to address it sooner or later. Six point four million Matt for a guy signed through two thousand twenty seven, like that contract's not going to look start looking any better anytime soon. So I think if, if they can find a team that's desperate for goaltending, if maybe they retain some salary, um, you know, they might be able to, to get rid of Gibson and, and start to, you know, build their goaltending out. And Doskal is 23. So, you know, you can maybe give him a longer look down the road. But, you know, as we talked yeah. about for this whole episode, a lot of it comes down to goaltending and, and they just have not had enough good goaltending this year. Well, as we wind down our episode, uh, we want to remind our viewers and listeners to, uh, to, you know, check out the archives, to subscribe to the Hockey News, uh, to check out the amazing work that uh, that you and 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 the team over in uh, in in Canada are doing. Um, what stories are you working on right now? Well, we're doing the usual year-end type of stories where you know we look back at at the headlines that that happened throughout the year and maybe do some predicting. Uh, revisit some of our predictions first of all from the season and see how well we did and then uh, maybe make some new ones as well so it's it's always a nice time of year um, to kind of do those retrospectives and and uh, you know kind of revisit history while it's still kind of fresh um, sometimes people you know lose track of that history in, in you know, almost like goldfish in terms of your mindset you just flush it out and hope for the better but I think you know the beauty of the hockey news and the hockey news archive Matt is that it's there for people to see good or bad Um, you know, not everything that we've written, certainly not everything I've written has, has, uh, has stood up well in the test of time. We've all made mistakes as writers, especially as an opinion writer, you have to be willing to fail if you're going to be willing to succeed. So I think that's, that's something I'm, I'm happy to stand by my record, but it's it's fun. I think to have this archive now and to go through it, um, it really helps inform, uh, you know, the stuff that we do right on a daily basis at the and, um, you know, give people something that they really can't get everywhere else or anywhere else. There's, there's, there's no uh, media outlet or platform that has the history that has the, you know, the living, breathing history that the hockey news does. So, I mean, that's to me, um, you can't really ask for more than that from an employer. And it's, it's nice that, um, we get to kind of revisit, uh, stuff we've done in the past. Well, just uh, for people at home and in their cars or wherever they're listening to the show, if you have any suggestions of, of guests you want to see, of, of time periods, of, of, of hockey that you want to talk about uh, or talk about, 
as you say. Uh, <laughs> hit us at uh, the Hockey News Archive Show at Gmail. That's one way to get us. Uh, we are on uh, Instagram at the Hockey News Archive Show, and then on X uh, at thnarchive.com. I think that's what it is. Anyway, find us. Lots of ways. Uh, yep. We're not hard. We're, we're not hard to find. So uh, you know, check us out, and uh, we appreciate your support. We are having a lot of fun doing this show and uh, we wish everybody a Merry Christmas and uh, we will be back next week with the, uh, the incomparable Hal Gill from uh, Nashville predators and, uh, and uh, THN correspondent for the Nashville predators and Kimmel. She's a great guest. So they will both be joining us and um, we look forward to seeing you then. So in the meantime, happy holidays, stay safe, don't drink and drive and we'll see you next week.